Information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnoses, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. Good morning and welcome to our inaugural Blue Crew Medicine Podcast. I'm here today with our good friend Joe Doe, a.k.a. Dr. Joseph Doherty, who is an assistant professor in the emergency medicine department here at UMC, along with the board-certified and critical care intensivist here in our critical care tower. Welcome, Joe. Thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, we are also joined by Dr. Taylor Walks, who is currently a PGY3 EM resident here at UMC. Uh, good to have you, buddy. Thanks, man. Um coming to you live from the uh, Mississippi Center for Emergency Services, or MCES building, here on UMC's main campus. Um, I'm your host today, Will Appleby, uh, one of the critical care paramedics with Air Care. So let's get started. Let's, uh, let's talk about a little bit about airway management. What makes y'all tick? What's everybody got their own little cocktail of different sorts, different things, different tricks, different resources they want to use? What's y'all's protocol, per se? What's y'all's methodology to it? So figuring out when to intubate these patients is tricky because, like I alluded to earlier, it's difficult to tell just from your external exam how much how bad their airway is. You don't want to intubate someone who doesn't need to be intubated, but if you wait too long, it can end poorly for you. Um, that said, I do tend to lean towards intubating early in these patients. Um, if you intubate them early and they didn't need to be intubated, it's fairly easy to extubate them. Like the patient with lip swelling, you know, obviously doesn't need to be intubated. The patient with tongue swelling, especially if they say it's progressing, um, that and I've given them TXA and FFP and it still looks like it's progressing, um, that's when I'm thinking about moving towards intubation. Um, and Intubating before it becomes an emergency uh, is key because that lets you get all of your tools there. Call a friend. Um, call get, your, get your resources yes. in a row. Yeah. Yes. Definitely. Definitely. Well, and I think, too, my opinion is I'm never going to be upset if in the pre-hospital setting you're ultra conservative and you decide to take their airway before they get there. You all have a much harder job than we do. You have less resources. Um, you, you have a tougher decision to make, I think, in a lot, of, a lot of ways. And so I think erring on the side of conservative um, is probably the right way to go. Like Joe said, they didn't need it. Extubation is not, not super difficult if they really didn't need it. So the other thing, too, is like I said, you, you have less resources. And so kind of jumping into to our what we kind of do is um, I think if, if your, your thought is that this is someone that, that could be progressing towards intubation, um, one adjunct you can do is to do uh, just a look. Um, and that may mean a lot of different things based off your resources. You may have, you know, fancy stuff, a bronchoscope, a nasopharyngeal scope like we have in our emergency room. You may not have anything other than maybe you have a glide scope. Uh, you know, I feel like even most of our rural hospitals now have video laryngoscope available. Um, it's just to give the patient a little bit of a sedative. Uh, I thought like ketamine is probably most people's go-to. Um, and just look. And then once you decide to do this, um, you know, you can uh, do a lot of different things. I think um, I remember my first one of these as an intern. I had, um, and I used ketamine 
And, and the one thing that I'll put out there that I didn't do that I have done every time now is to give clecopyrrolate. Um, one of the biggest side effects of ketamine is secretions. And a patient who you're looking or expecting to have airway problems, Golden ultrasound. Mm-hmm. It is. Um, and it, it can really change how difficult it could be. Um, so from mistakes that I've made, uh, if you're going to give ketamine, just give glycopyrrolate. For our free hospital providers, if you don't have glycopyrrolate, atropine works the same way. Yeah. You'll see the increase in heart rate, which you'll see with ketamine too. Something else um, we ran into not long ago was had a lot of secretions, didn't have a lot of the view. Use an ultrasound. Just trying to literally put it on the tissue, see what you can see, try not to irritate them, obviously. Mm-hmm. But look underneath, hey, does this go all the way down the cores? Does this literally stay where it's supposed to be? Is there is there some kind of other weird component to it? Is there trauma involved? You, you can get a little view and try to figure out where you're at. Um, also, use it confirming, making sure you're in the right spot later. But um, definitely trying to give you a best view you can, especially if you don't have VL or don't, can't get a really good view of VL or can't open your mouth wide enough, all those kinds of things. I think the other thing, too, you know, uh, is once you make the decision that intubation is the route you're taking, and a lot of times in the rural hospitals and, and in pre-hospital care, this isn't a huge deal, but it is in, you know, our academic hospital with trainees is um, the most experienced person should be doing this. And I know y'all run into this. Y'all get called all the time um, for some of the, the rural uh, advanced practice providers or something that may not be as comfortable or have as much experience, you know, and I know that, that y'all don't have difficulty doing this, but some of our other listeners that maybe you're, maybe you're a flight medic or you may be the most experienced person to do this. And I, I would encourage you not to be shy or bashful about saying that, that maybe it's best for, for you to be attempting this, um, from the get go. Like I said, that's something we run into a little bit more with, with residents and trainees, but, um, but also if you have other help to have the most experienced person ready, but have someone who is familiar with a surgical airway. Make it, make it a team effort. That's something I've noticed with all these airways. I've done several of these with both of y'all together, all three of us together, but make sure everybody in the room is on the same page. Taking those two seconds to say, Hey, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. Does anybody have any better ideas or anybody have any options? And then using, you're kind of using it as a teaching opportunity too, but you're making sure, hey, if something goes awry, nobody's going to freak out. This is a conversation we're all having. And I've always been straight, straight up with patients. Like, hey, look, the real problem with this is your airway. What I'm going to do is doing very controlled. I'm going to put you to sleep, but I'm going to make it where you're not feeling any pain, and then we're good to go. We'll talk about it and this, that, and the other. Some other things off-label I try to play with, talk about like if you're in great drug, making sure you use cetacane spray. If somebody's got cetacane spray, little things like numbing it up, just making sure if you're trying to get that one little look where you get something, um, nebulizing lidocaine even. Simple things like antitussants, nebulizing morphine. Uh-huh. Morphine's a direct antitussant. Use it to your advantage so they don't cough or gag against you. Again, trying to get you the best look you possibly can. Well, I think too, if you're, you're progressing down uh, you know, maybe a look or even thinking that there's so much tongue swelling that, that nasally intubating is maybe your way to go. Um, depending on how much time you have, um, taking a, a nasopharyngeal airway and sticking it in some lidocaine jelly and shoving it in. I mean, just like you said, little things, because we all realize the last thing you want in this patient is the patient to be anxious, right? The more calm the patient is, the better this is going to go. So that's a really good point. I guess kind of speaking to nasally intubating, I had my first nasal intubation as an intern with Joe, 
And one of the things, again, that I've learned from experience that was helpful is when you go to nasally intubate somebody and you have a bronchoscope or nasopharyngeal scope that you're going to look and you have your ET tube preloaded, right, is to, again, put some jelly or lidocaine jelly on the ET tube and use the ET tube as a nasopharyngeal airway so that when you have the scope in the tube, by the time you actually get the scope through the end of the tube, that tube is already in the posterior oropharynx. So that's something Joe taught me that I think is super helpful, right? Um, especially if you think there's some swelling of the nasopharyngeal airway. Sometimes it can be difficult. Just th these bronchoscopes and nasopharyngeal scopes are flimsy. And even do it, even do it blind. Just get right. it, get in the posterior oropharynx first before you start trying to get it and trick you the first shot. Get it to the back. Okay, you feel dropper resistance. You feel all that stuff. Like you said, secretions, making sure you got the right tube size, making sure it's long enough. You got some of right. patients, you know, really long necks. You mm -hmm. look at them, you're going to do this difficult airway assessment. You're looking at lemon and all the moans, all the acronyms you can think of. But long necks, one of them, make sure your tube can reach. I mean, if you've only got, if you got a five and a half or six oak because they got a small narrow, nasal may not be your option if they got a long neck. Well, I think, too, to speak to that, always hub these out. If you're ever intubating someone nasally, you know, we always talk about when you when you intubate somebody orally, you, you talk you think of the intern or the the first time medic who's doing it, and they just they want it so bad they they hub it out, right? And that's not always the best thing. If you're going through the nose, hub it out. You are not going to put it too deep through the nose nine nine point nine times out of ten. So if that's you know, I I feel like that could be a mistake that someone who's maybe doing it for the first time um, would make. Up. You're not going to put it too deep. Right. Um, you're you're definitely going to put it too shallow if you don't hub it out more times than not. In terms of managing the airway in these patients, I think of it in a stepwise approach. And it's, you know, it's not, most of the times it's not going to be a crashing airway, so you have time to get everything together. Um, so if I've decided, you know, someone has angioedema, they need, we need to take their airway, I find it beneficial to do both a local anesthetic approach as well as a systemic. So... Probably the best thing to use um, is some lidocaine jelly, what people would refer to as a lidocaine lollipop. Put it on a tongue depressor, um, have the patient stick it all the way back down and let it drip down their throat. Lidocaine nebs, the particle size for a lidocaine neb is small, so it's more going to deposit in your smaller airways and not as much in the oropharynx. It'll work some. If you don't have lidocaine jelly, an alternative is to just take um, your uh, amp of cardiac epi and have the patient use it like a shot, just gargle it and then spit it out. Um, and then, like Taylor was saying, use uh, it, put in a uh, nasal airway, and I'll sometimes serially dilate with a nasal airway. Smear lidocaine jelly on it. Put a say, put a twenty-eight French in, and then change that out to a thirty-two. Uh, so you just work your way up. Yeah, just work your way up. Once I have them topicalized, ketamine is my drug of choice here. Um, it dissociates them. Um, it helps with pain. Keeps them spontaneously breathing. Uh, my first approach is, at this point, is pretty much always taking a look with video laryngoscopy. Um, I've had some patients with really bad-looking airways externally that you can actually get a pretty decent view um, with video laryngoscopy. Um, and that's just going to be so much easier in terms of securing the tube. Um, you don't have to worry about pressure necrosis that you do have to if someone's going to be nasotracheally intubated for a while. But I will have my... I will have my nasal airway um, in their nose, um, getting the getting that ready in case I can't see what I need to with video laryngoscopy. But I'll go over with my video laryngoscope, just 
slowly creeping back the tongue, see if I can get a view. If I can get a view, sometimes they'll tolerate passing a tube there. But if I have a good view, but they're not going to tolerate passing a tube, I already have, they're sedated, I have paralytic ready to go. Um, the nurse has it in hand. I, like, I keep my view with the video alert in the scope and have the nurse push the paralytic. Um, and 30 seconds later, you're ready to pass your tube. Again, use that team approach. Everybody's yes. everybody's on the same page. Yes. Cool. My syringe and hooked all the way up, and I'm right there. All I got to do is this. Boom. Yeah. Yeah. This isn't something that you're <laughs> saying. Hey, someone's got sucks or yeah. rock, right? You know, after you finally right. get a view, and then it's two minutes before they can get it out of the code cart, and, and the uh, patient starts coughing. Yeah. Down. It's right. Yeah. Video laryngoscopy is my first approach, and up front, you want to be talking. You want to go through it with your entire team. Okay, we're going to go. Oral, oral video first, we're going to go nasal, uh, nasal paper optic next, and then option three. Um, Dr. Watts already talked some about the nasal approach, and I do agree putting the tube in the nose and go putting the endotracheal tube in the nose and scoping through that is your best approach. Um, and then, unfortunately, these do uh, wind up in a surgical airway a significant amount of the time. If you have the hands there for it, you want to be doing what you refer to as a double setup. So you have someone, an experienced intubator at the head, um, and then you have someone capable of doing a surgical airway at the, on the patient's right. And I will go as far as if I think we're going to get to that point, I will go ahead and mark the corrective thyroid membrane with a pen. That's one of my favorite tricks is if you walk in a door of any airway you think may be difficult. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, or not, one of the first things I did, I carry a sharp one mm -hmm. I'm really going to mark. People look at me like I'm funny, but in a moment, if it goes down to you get this intubation attempt, it doesn't go right, and everybody's amped up, everything else. You want to make sure I hit, I took the two seconds, got my landmarks, got everything I wanted, or maybe it's not the best landmarks in the world, but I know where it is now. So I just make that decision look good. And I think the best thing that marking their neck does for you um, is getting everyone on the same page, is that we are thinking that we might wind up doing a surgical airway in this patient. The hardest part of doing a correctly thyrotomy, it is not stepwise a difficult procedure. The hardest part is deciding we are going to do it. And by marking the neck, you are telling your entire you're showing your entire team we have decided that if we if our first if our orotracheal and nasotracheal options fail, we will be performing a surgical airway in this patient. Something else we not everybody has access to surgical products. You can't do scalpels when you start practice this, that and the other. Something else, old school method Retrograde. I'm always keeping the back of my head of, hey, we can do it. it the catch is, you got to be able to see the wire and get the wire through. Also, you got to have the wire big enough. So you can't use like a regular radial art line wire. You got to use a central line guide wire or something long enough that actually got to reach. But again, you got to be able to see it. So mm -hmm. depending on what you're looking at, it may not be a good option. It all depends on how much time you have. I've I've never personally myself done a retrograde intubation. Even a central line wire may not work, be, may not be stiff enough. Um, it's an option that's out there, um, but I know I've only heard of one or two being done in the last decade here. I think maybe maybe that's maybe it's a little more of a consideration in your pediatric patient who's younger and maybe you're a little concerned about doing a surgical airway. But at that point, too, I mean, you can make the argument for, for doing, uh, you know, a needle and jet insufflation uh, yeah. versus trying to do a retrograde intubation. Um, so, so maybe in the pediatric population, it, it's probably not in my 
immediate tool bag of things to try. I'm probably just going for a surgical airway before that becomes an option. But but in the pediatric patient, I think it gets more difficult, right? I mean, you have the the six-year-old who has a tough airway, where right? I don't even like the six-year-old that has an easy airway. Um, but I think maybe that's more of a consideration there. Uh, but in the adult patient, I don't know. It's probably not in my tool bag. Maybe some other people are more experienced with it, but it's just something. It's always something to think about and keep in mind. Again, if you're familiar with it, you know what you're doing. You play with it enough times on a dummy. You've seen a couple done. It's a great option to have, but it's an option. Huh. Um, I'm with y'all. Usually, correct seems to be, you said it perfectly, it's the decision to do it. Once everyone makes a decision, we decide to do it as a team, it's usually pretty clean cut and done. I try to keep my difficult airway algorithm simple because it's a high-stress situation. No matter how many times you've been in that situation, you're still going to be stressed. And you don't want to be doing a procedure that you haven't done a lot. I don't get fancy with my difficult airways. It's look oral, look nasal if that's an option in that patient, and then cut the neck. So from a from a transport side of the street, whether it's EMS 911 or facility, critical care team, y'all receive these patients a lot. The decision not to take somebody's airway, the decision not to cut them if you don't have to, keep it in the back of your mind. But obviously doing that in a transport environment is extremely difficult. Um, depending on the airframe you're in, depending on the ambulance configuration you're in, even smaller van ambulances, they don't, that where the airway seat is and it doesn't always give you the best view, you may have any number of different things rolling down certain highways, more bumpy than others. The decision not to take the airway versus take it. Uh, you get in that situation where it wasn't your decision. You can't make that proactive approach. You're kind of more reactive. What makes you think that that was a good decision? Was it like waiting to get to ENT or waiting to get to a definitive center where they may have more resources? In my opinion, waiting is usually turns into a worse situation than not. I've had a recent example uh, of a, a pediatric airway um, at a rural hospital here um, and luckily had, uh, you know, our air care service uh, come available to have other hands on deck and talked about it with uh, the patient's uh, parents and the air care crew to say, look, we're going to actually stay here for 20 more minutes and we're either taking the airway here or we're going to say we're very comfortable that they can make this 45-minute transport safely. And to me, I think that, and this is just an example, that a lot of times uh, is better um, than saying, let's just get them out of here so it's not my problem. Because um, that, that may be what is better for your nerves in the moment, um, but probably not what's best for the patient. Take that deep breath, right? Just let's, let's have that plan. Let's talk about it. That's the kind of thing to me. Is like, all right, let's transport if you need to. If you make that decision, to take that two seconds. All right, let's let's hang on. Let's see if this is going to maintain. Because if you're not going to make it, I would rather be sitting in a hospital or somewhere stationary where I had a little bit more resources over my hands if I got them to help me out. Yeah, it's a difficult call to make in retrospect because most of the time it may end up fine, but there are those times that it's going to, you know. If you're sitting at another hospital and if you're if you're the transport team and you're like, I don't know if I should take this airway or not, um, probably most of the time it's going to be fine, but there's going to be a number of times that it 
they decompensate in uh, in transfer. It's difficult to predict. I never second guess our transport teams in terms of taking an airway. Like I said, if they didn't need to be intubated, the tube's going to come out easy anyhow. You don't want to be... I think it's better for a transport team to have to answer the question, why did you intubate this patient after you know, they didn't need to be intubated, then why didn't you intubate this patient and they decompensated in route and maybe wound up with a surgical airway when they could have been endotracheally intubated prior to transfer. Was there anything else y'all wanted to talk about with the with bad AGOD? No, I think we kind of hit on most everything. I think the biggest thing is you have to use your, your, your judgment. Whatever your experience level is, whatever level you're at, you have to use your best judgment and, and kind of trust that. Have respect for this uh, for this disease. They're some of the worst airways that you will ever see, that you can't ever see. You know, it, it may not progress, but be ready to take manage the airway if you need to. And as with any airway management uh, situation, but even more so with this, you know, option A, option B, option C, and just spell it out. Communicate with your team. These are what our options are going to be. From a bradykine and mediated angioedema standpoint, we don't have great options. Uh, none of these medicines have really been shown to change outcomes a lot. There's, I'm sure there's, there's research ongoing. Um, TXA is one of the things it has been talked about a lot over the last several years, but we just don't have fantastic options. For hereditary angioedema, we do. We have several FDA-approved medications, but for medication-induced angioedema, uh, we don't have great options. So watch them, reassess your patient frequently, take the airway if you think you need to take the airway. So something else, Dr. Walsh, you brought up a little bit earlier, talk about medication-induced. Is there something, is there, there's a couple more drugs out on the market that have caused angioedema in the past, one of them being TPA. How bad is it? So I've had three of these um, in three years of residency so far. They never go super well. Um, and, and then you, you kind of get down into the rabbit hole of you just gave TPA, for most people, that's going to be, you just gave it for a stroke. Um, and now you're talking about TXA as being our first line to help with this and giving TXA to someone. What do we do? Um, so I think in those patients, it's probably just comes back to airway management. Um, and it even gets more complicated, right? Because we're talking about all these things we're doing are disturbing tissues, right? Whether you're looking orally, looking nasally doing a surgical airway uh, in someone you just gave TPA to. Um, so I think just makes your airway management preparedness that much more. And I think it's something to just make sure you're aware of that can happen with TPA. What's, uh, the, what's the onset? What, what Typically, what have you seen? It, pretty rapid. Um, w- within uh, 10 to 20 minutes of the infused TPA bolus going in. You know, and I think it's uh, a tough situation especially for, for you guys, right? Y'all get go and pick up dripping ships all the time. Uh, that it may not happen just right immediately, but probably about the time you're getting ready to, to, to go out. So, um, I, again, all these adjunct medicines we talked about, like Joe said, not great evidence. Um, the one thing that does show good evidence is uh, securing the airway, right? That's the fear of complication with this. So, um, but I think knowing that there may be even a heightened level um, of complications uh, from multiple angles is important. Um, and, and, you know, understanding that, that this is going to be more difficult with, with a bloody airway. Um, but something just to be aware of. I mean, everyone's familiar with ACE 
are right. And there are other medications that can cause this, but um, and, and not to say that, that everybody that gets TPA gets angioedema from it, but it's something to be aware of for sure. There are, yeah, it's, there are patients out there who are predisposed to angioedema, um, but like we discussed, you know, there are patients who are on ACE inhibitors for years without having any re reaction, and then someday, for no reason that we can discern, they have a reaction, and it's probably what we would call a, a what we refer to in medicine and science as a two-hit hypothesis. So, you know, um, they are on an ACE inhibitor, which inhibits a breakdown of bradykinin, and then they start on some other medicine, or, you know, in the case of TPA-induced, um, bradykinin, they may have a higher level of bradykinin um, because they're on an ACE inhibitor, and then you, uh, actually one of the effects of uh, bradykinin is it, uh, causes release of your endogenous TPA. So they can they can feed back on each other. You know, their their bradykinin levels weren't high enough just on the uh, ACE inhibitor, but you give them TPA or they come under stress for some reason, they get an infection or just who knows what causes it. Yeah. So it's not a it's usually not a single I can put my finger on this is the one thing that causes this patient to develop angioedema. Guys, appreciate you coming today. Thanks for uh, participating. Good combo. Yeah, thank thanks you for This has been a presentation of Blue Crew Medicine.